Good morning, Scott. Thank you for joining us. Hi, how you doing? Hi, Eric. Howdy. So you know Eric, my name's Keely. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so Thank much for joining us. Thank you. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. Eric was sharing prior to you coming on that you are an advocate for people who basically are enduring medical gaslighting. Yeah, folks who are medically marginalized. Can you just share with us how you got into that line of work and and also what that looks like in a day-to-day basis and how you're how you're supporting people to help validate their illnesses? Sure. Uh, so I guess to tell that story, I have to contrast it with my earlier medical care experiences. So tested positive for HIV in 1998. And uh because of all of the efforts of HIV AIDS activists, there were medications available in the early 2000s that were very effective for me. So I regained my health and took a look around at like, hey, where is the need the greatest for HIV AIDS? And as it was then, as it is now, it was sub-Saharan Africa. So I joined with a couple of men that used to be with Doctors Without Borders, but we're starting a new organization called Dignitas International, which was focused specifically on HIV AIDS in Africa and worked with them for a few years. And so my exposure to the medical system was it saved me via HIV. And I saw how we could set up a medical system in a country that had very little resources and have an effective medical care system there. So my exposure to the medical care system was all good. And if you had have asked me in, say, 2006, 2007, if the medical system could be gaslighting, harming a whole section, a whole group of people, I wouldn't have believed you. I would have said, oh, you're mistaken, or can't be that many people or, you know, it just just couldn't be true. I could not have been convinced otherwise. And then I got sick in 2012 with ME. And uh, so that exposed me to the other medical system of to which I was not aware of where gaslighting is de rigueur and medical harm and medical errors. Well, medical error causes is the third leading cause of death. And so since then, I've switched my focus from HIV AIDS to people with medically marginalized illnesses. So ME, long COVID, mold, um, fibro, MC, or multiple chemical sensitivity, those sorts of illnesses. And so when I was working with uh, Dignitas International, my work was primarily around uh, fundraising, creating awareness. And then when I moved back or when I came back and switched focus to uh, counseling, I worked in HIV counseling and research counseling. Uh, but then through my own experiences with ME, I changed my focus to mental health counseling only for people with medically marginalized illnesses. And while HIV may be socially marginalized, all these other illnesses, socially marginalized, but very much medically marginalized. So that's where my specialty is. And in terms of advocacy, uh, so yeah, advocacy around HIV AIDS, advocacy around ME. Although to be honest, I've sort of pulled back the last few years from some advocacy, advocacy that works with the government because I, a couple of years ago, I asked myself by playing this role of uh, patient partner 
Am I affecting change or am I really just part of their system? Do I just give them permission to point to me and say, hey, yeah, we're engaging with the patient partners. Look, we've got this guy over here and this person over there. And so when I really asked myself that question, I I thought, you know, I'm part of sustaining a system that is not designed to change, is not really changing. And so I'm not going to support that particular system. There's some commitments I made that I'm still sort of finishing off with the government. Um, But otherwise, uh, more of my advocacy is more toward what are other systems that are being developed that are parallel to the current broken, corrupted system? And that's where I'll focus some of my energy. That's such an interesting observation that you asked yourself, like, am I accidentally causing more harm than helping? Because that's something that we see a lot in the mold world of people thinking that they're helping and probably having the intention to help but actually giving advice that's either outright wrong, bad, or not appropriate. It's a big phenomenon. Eric, what were you going to say? Well, uh, all of our MECFS organizations have been co-opted, and they're actually as if they're working for the opponents, for the deniers. You know, they keep repeating, nothing is known, there's no history, there's no evidence. And in a way, they're actually reinforcing the very doubt that keeps the deniers in business. So, uh, Scott, when you got sick, um, chronic fatigue syndrome is sort of the established name for the illness, uh, not ME, which is not recognized in uh, Canada or the United States very much, somewhat in Canada, but they've really glommed on to chronic fatigue syndrome. Did they call what you had in 2012 uh, ME? Oh, no. It. Uh, I think it took me maybe... A couple of months, maybe even less than two months to figure out what I had because I was a triathlete. So it was easier to see the post-exertional malaise and how it was related to exercise. Uh, So I figured it out pretty quick, but it took five years before a doctor said, oh, yeah, you've got MECFS at that point. And he used both initials at that point? It was at the... uh, environmental health clinic in downtown Toronto. And I'm guessing she probably used MECFS, but I pretty much always use ME. So they typically try to adopt whatever language the, the patients are using. But I don't I don't actually recall, to tell you the truth, Eric, what language they used at that meeting. Ah, it's uh, the name game, the continual shifting of the target entity is what helps keep the deniers in business. And when I got sick, they didn't have a name for the disease at all. Nothing. In fact, uh, chronic Epstein-Barr virus syndrome hadn't even been coined yet. So here we had this incredible void. And the first uh, preliminary names like yuppie flu and um, the adult mono gradually morphed over time until finally the chronic fatigue syndrome was coined in 1988. And there's a whole story behind the creation of that term. But at the time, the uh, researchers in the United States knew nothing about ME. They couldn't even pronounce it. They couldn't spell it. And uh, when they discussed it in the Holmes Committee, they complained that that was a terrible name because nobody can even say it. So the uh, chronic fatigue syndrome was based on a different set of parameters than ME. 
And the Lake Tahoe outbreak, which I was a part, was said by the ME literate doctors to be a typical outbreak of ME, possessing all the primary determinants of the Ramsey ME definition. And then these very same people who were said to be ME were then called by this new name of chronic fatigue syndrome, very same people. So this is taken by advocates uh, as a sign that ME and CFS are identical. They're the same thing. When the reality is, when we first heard about ME, we thought of it as the Royal Free Disease, 1955 Royal Free Hospital outbreak in London, which was thought to be an enteroviral uh, outbreak. And we had no evidence for that at Lake Tahoe. The testing was much better by 1985. So they did try to look for uh, polio-type antibodies, didn't find them. But what they did find was a newly discovered herpes virus by the Gallo lab, just discovered it that in the middle of the outbreak, as a matter of fact. And this turned out the, to be the big player. So it was a herpetic virus, not an enterovirus. So that's why I used the chronic fatigue syndrome nomenclature, because it was actually created for a different data set and a different virus. Uh, I didn't quite understand that distinction happening uh, along the viral or along the virus line. Yeah, the uh, advocates, they never told anybody about this. I was kind of surprised because uh, I go, well, you've got two different data sets here. And by just mixing up the names this way, it'll cause vast confusion. But they decided that it was better to keep it vague so that researchers could get into it and discover things and not be constrained by any particular evidence they have to conform to. But this has indeed brought up a serious problem because the Holmes Committee had a great deal of evidence under consideration of this new virus. That was the main scary thing because they had no idea what this HBLV, later renamed HHV6-alpha, what it was doing. They knew it was bad, but who knows what chronic active um, HHV6 does? They didn't. So they really had to create a new syndrome to study it. But much to their delight, I'm sure the CDC was very happy about this. The vast majority of people had reactivated Epstein-Barr virus. And all the doctors and researchers were saying, well, CFS follows Epstein-Barr virus. So they regarded EBV as if it were the cause when that was actually ruled out, excluded to coin the new syndrome. And it created massive confusion. And rather than resolve this, they just gave up and said, well, chronic fatigue syndrome has no evidence. It was coined for no particular reason. And all the CDC knew at that time was tired people. And I know that you're supporting uh, David Tuller in his efforts to challenge the PACE trial. And I've been, I've made myself extremely disliked by the MECFS community for criticizing David Tuller because he made the juggling of numbers by British Sykes in the, in the fatigue study as the focal point of his criticism. And I told David Teller, well, who cares about a few juggled numbers? That's not a major crime. It shows they're incompetent for sure, but that's not something that's strong enough to overturn their dominance in the field, where if we use the evidence and show that chronic fatigue syndrome was coined for immune abnormalities, low natural killer cell function for a scary new virus, and all the other evidence that was generated at this time, 
then maybe we can shake them up a little bit. But uh, that hasn't been done. So as far as I'm concerned, their ad- their advocacy, it has no teeth to it because their criticisms lack substance. If you're just defending the concept that chronic fatigue syndrome was coined for no reason, then you don't really have a lot to complain about. Yeah, I've seen uh, some of your posts and the lack the lack of likes on Twitter for them. Yeah. Well, people don't understand my point. Um, if I were to go into a doctor, and this happened right after the outbreak, where doctors hadn't heard about this evidence and said, well, I think chronic fatigue syndrome is just a psychological problem. And then you hold up your medical chart and go, do these tests indicate a psychological problem to you, doctor? I mean, we've got... Um, Total loss of B cells. We've got an active herpes virus infection. We've got low VO2 max, uh, low oxygen consumption. All these things are very real and very scary. For you to say chronic fatigue syndrome is psychosomatic is an indication that you don't believe in your own testing because these medical tests are compelling. And of course, this would shake them up and whoa, whoa. And they always use the excuse, okay, well, maybe your chronic fatigue syndrome is real, but what about everybody else? Well, they didn't have the testing to substantiate it. So doctors are getting away with abusing people simply because the uh, patient community isn't really using the evidence, the history in their defense. Why do you think that is? Well, greed. Let me be blunt. From the moment this syndrome was announced, the absolute minute everybody wanted to take control of it. Everybody thought they were going to be the player. They were going to sell products. They were going to get grant funding. They were going to dominate the field. And they jumped in as if they were authorities, like they knew all about chronic fatigue syndrome when they'd never looked into any of the processes that brought this syndrome into existence. And so I would uh, call up doctors who claim to be experts in this new chronic fatigue syndrome and I say, well, I'm a survivor, and I can tell you about the evidence that started this thing. They go, oh, no, I'm, I'm the doctor here. I will tell you. They go, How are you going to do that? You were nowhere near, and you don't even have the slightest idea why the syndrome is coined. So basically, it was everybody jumping for power and control that overruled the ability to get the evidence out there so that could be, people could make sense of what the heck this thing was all about. Well, how do how do you think we should go forward to correct the path we're we're on? Well, exposing mold is proceeding as I think we should um, handle this, which is to expose the malfeasance and demonstrate that this entire episode has been so badly mishandled that they've got to go back and reconsider just about everything they've done throughout the entire history of both. Royal Free ME, and Lake Tahoe Mystery Disease Chronic Fatigue Syndrome. Can I play devil's advocate? Sure. So that sounds like you want to change the system, which I contend is broken and corrupted. (laughs) And that feels like a a Sisyphean endeavor. It does. But I feel that if anybody cares about the scientific process, you, you have to try, because that's what we rely on. We want good science. We want our medical detectives and our researchers and our scientists to abide by good practices and do things properly, because if they don't, who knows what else they're going to screw up? 
and they are screwing it up because look at long COVID. They jumped into this and they're treating it just as badly as they did ME and CFS in the early days. They're recreating all their same mistakes with no systematic methodology to go through and make sure they get it right the first time. Yeah, exactly. Same mistakes over and over. It's uh, it's the system. Yeah, so the um, majority of advocates, in fact, I would say all of them, <laughs> want to work from within. They feel that they can work with the CDC and NIH and guide them back onto the proper path. And that's terrific. You know, that's very noble and reasonable way to go about it. But when the system is so corrupt that you can't even get these people to redress their early basic mistakes, you know, there's no potential for a good outcome. So to correct this mess, you've really got to shake the towers of the mighty. You've got to literally destroy the evidence and rebuild it. It is that corrupt. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's why I'm sort of in favor of just building a parallel system. It's easier, I would think, than trying to change the current broken, corrupted system, as, as we've seen for the last 30, 40 years. Hard, hard to change, except for maybe the HIV AIDS activists. But uh, it's the exception that sort of proves the rule. Unless you get up into their face, not much is going to change. That's right. They can simply ignore you. No matter how valid your criticisms, they just walk away and rely on people's short-term memory to forget that the challenge was ever made. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I was around for the uh, early AIDS days, and I watched that fiasco progress, and I, I just couldn't believe what I was seeing. Like, when it first emerged, doctors were saying, well, you have nothing to fear because this is just affecting a few homosexuals. And as long as you're heterosexual and reasonably celibate, you have absolutely nothing to fear. And you could look at how this thing was progressing and go, wait a minute. <laughs> These people are out of their minds. This is a danger to society and it needs to be taken seriously. They have no business uh, trying to reassure you know, straight heterosexual people that we shouldn't pay attention to this because you're going to be okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah, as if a virus cares if you're straight or gay. Exactly. But I was outraged at this injustice, uh, a violation of human rights, essentially. But also, it's a violation of science. Nobody in their right mind, an honest researcher, could never look at an emerging threat and try to minimize it in, in spite of all the evidence showed just how deadly this thing was. Yeah. Yep. Unless, unless they're corrupted. That's the only, the only reason that they would not follow the, the scientific method. So being at the center of the creation of chronic fatigue syndrome, because I was involved in the creation of the syndrome. I mean, I watched it from day one, the data set that caused the Holmes 1988 definition to be published. So in essence, from a scientific point of view, we have to regard this as a new entity, whether or not the disease is old or new. This is new evidence. And to make any sense of it, you have to stick with the numbers. You have to play the game. You have to use science properly. So from that point of view, it's actually a, a fairly simple and manageable 
process to find exactly CFS is for and go along with it. So since I was part of that, I'm, um, of course, focused on the corruption and the mishandling of this particular syndrome. But if you look at Lyme disease, multiple chemicals, chemical sensitivity, um, mold illness, any start point of evidence, you can see that the medical profession has similarly screwed up all of them. At no point did they establish a, a reference, a, a standard, and say, okay, this is what we're starting our investigation with, and we're going to proceed on this basis in a methodical way. No, they keep shifting the target, changing the numbers, moving from one to the next, and just compounding on confusion. So that's what scares me, is it's not just the medical system that's corrupt, it's science itself. Because if they lack the means for self-correction, we can't rely on anything. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And the research funding system, it's, you know, also been corrupted. It's all, it's grown progressively worse. And I think it's been more and more exposed over the most recent pandemic. So to bring out an example of what I mean, the chronic um, Epstein-Barr syndrome is based on a test that shows the proliferation of B cells. The EBV serology test shows an aberrant profile for Epstein-Barr virus, and it's very distinctive. In fact, it's so compelling that the EBV uh, was considered a disease by the Center for Disease Control. It's a distinct pathology, an etiological agent that is measurable. I mean, it's perfectly testable, and you can tell if somebody has this aberrant pattern or not. And that's what the, the EBV syndrome was for. Well, the Lake Tahoe outbreak came along, and we had the exact opposite, a total loss of B cells. So that's what got Dr. Holmes so confused, and the CDC, because it made no sense. They were looking at it as if this was the EBV syndrome, and the test was completely wrong. Well, rather than clear up the mess, they just said, well, I guess it's just fatigue. We don't know anything about it. Well, at that point, they should have separated the EBV syndrome from the Lake Tahoe illness, consider it two different groups, and go, okay, here we've got the B-cell proliferation group and the low B-cell group. And this is why I say these mistakes made in the early days were never corrected. And if you look at the secret files for the British psychiatrists, when they went behind closed doors and they contrived their 1990 Oxford definition, which said to Britain and the world, everybody who follows the NHS, that chronic fatigue syndrome was no evidence and probably a psychosomatic problem. Yet, in those secret files, they knew about this B-cell anomaly. They knew about the debate, the discord, the disagreement that resulted in the creation of the syndrome. And no medically educated person could possibly pretend that they don't understand that this is significant. And that is exactly what they did so they could impress their psychosomatic vision on the world. And they did that very, very successfully to the harms of millions of people. And this is why I've been criticizing Tom Kindland and David Tuller, because I'm going, why are you focusing on juggling numbers on a fatigue study? Why aren't you telling the world that the British psychiatrists knew about the immune abnormalities. They knew what the chronic fatigue syndrome was really coined for. 
nail him for it. Hit him between the guys. Hit, hit him with everything you got. These people are medically corrupt. They're liars. They're deceiving everybody. And they've gotten away with it for their own agenda for all these years. And nobody's calling them out for it. So why do you think uh, Tom and uh, David haven't taken on your perspective and explored that? Wow, I, I wish I knew. <laughs> I've been trying to understand their point of view for a long time. If you had DNA evidence that cleared you, established your case, I mean, something that beyond a shadow of a doubt backed you up on your assertions, why would you throw yourself on the mercy of public opinion and say, well, you haven't been handling this very well, so we don't really appreciate what you've done with this. No, if you've got evidence, you use it. So I don't know what they're doing or why they're doing it. Yeah, it sounds like the like the vast majority of people they're unaware of that early uh, part of the narrative that you were really at the center of and were able to witness. Well, actually, I made them completely aware, mm-hmm. and Tom Kinlan blocked me for it, and managed to persuade the um, ME community that I was a bad guy for trying to tell them anything about chronic fatigue syndrome. And so that left David Teller, who hasn't blocked me. And as you've seen, I get in his group on both Twitter and Facebook and criticize him, saying you're not using the evidence, you're letting people down. I still feel that it's the right thing to do. I, I, you froze on However, us for a second there. Eric. In terms of gaslighting, medical abuse, I've been trying to understand our opposition for a long, long time now. And I think that I do understand them a lot better. Because there are so many opportunists, schlocks, charlatans, liars, and corrupt people out there that you have to step up and protect the sanctity of peer-reviewed evidence and the medical system. Because if you don't, these schlocks are going to overrun the whole system, which is what they've done. Mm -hmm. So if you go into a doctor with something that makes no sense and you've got no evidence, of course they're going to fight you. They have to. Now, I go around Incline Village. I go to the hospitals and I go to the various doctors and I go, have you heard about this chronic fatigue syndrome debate? It's happening just a few miles away. In fact, in some cases, just a few offices away. This Dr. Peterson, Cimarron Research, they're, they're dealing with a really unusual situation here. Have, have you looked into it? No. Well, has this institute, Cimarron Research, come and told you what the debate is all about? No. Well, how could you ever hope to resolve this situation when these people are not even informed about what the debate is? I went to the hospital, the very one that turned away the original chronic fatigue syndrome cohort. I had a problem with an an intestinal adhesions that was set up by a bad appendectomy as a child, and it finally locked up. And I collapsed and I went into the, this hospital and they were fabulous. They just saved my life. They were professional. They were um, ethical. They were just, I, I can't say enough good things about them. And here's the interesting part. Some of the very people who were involved in denial of the chronic fatigue syndrome entity are still there. And I was able to say, now, wait a minute, you guys are so fantastic. For this known problem, what about this, this unknown thing? You go, well, we don't know anything about it. And so that's the problem 
is other than hearing about it from schlocks, charlatans, liars, and people who taking over ME and CFS for their own agenda, they're not even hearing about. So I feel it's incumbent upon these institutes to try to engage with mainstream medicine and tell them what the problem is. We've got immune abnormalities that don't make sense. We've got B-cell ratios, lymphocyte ratios. We've got a slew of these unusual things. Let's talk about it. And the institutes that I go to, they're making no effort to bridge the gap and bring that understanding to the people who just are protecting the peer-reviewed literature. Mm-hmm. It's frustrating. I hear you. We'd like to take a moment to thank our sponsors. Home Cleanse, formerly known as All American Restoration, is a company that specializes in improving indoor air quality through proper mold remediation, offering services nationwide. You can visit them at homecleanse.com to learn more. The Mold Guy performs mold sampling and testing for homeowners, renters, and businesses. Please visit themoldguyinc.com to learn more. Black Diamond Services provides solutions to the unforeseen challenges that can affect homes and families with no out-of-pocket costs. Services include temporary housing relocation and mold test referrals for homeowners. Visit blackdiamondservices.com to learn more. Thank you again for your sponsorships. It is integral to our ability to serve our community and to improve the quality of life for all. So I think uh, in your quest to help people with medical gaslighting, maybe what we can do is try to explain why they gaslight, why they fight you so hard. Are they evil people? Do they really want to hurt you? Or what's their motive for total denial of what you're trying to tell them? And what if it's all just a misunderstanding? And maybe if both sides could get together and we could just use some of this evidence, this immune evidence, to create a little bit of curiosity as to what we're talking about, then we might actually get somewhere. Well, I hope that happens. I'm not (laughs) sure how, but I hope it does. So anyway, I've had my rant here. you know, trying to talk to you, and I've been ranting away here this whole time. So tell us what you're up to. Uh, what I'm up to recently? Uh, just doing my counseling stuff. Uh, I dabbled a little bit in trying to do little short video social media things for about a month. It takes up a lot of time and energy to do all that. Um, so I haven't really gotten around to that. Um, but yeah, I'm not doing a lot of advocacy work. Like I said, I've pulled back from that. I'm more keeping my eyes open for opportunities that are developing parallel healthcare systems that aren't corrupt and broken. And so much of that is sort of being immersed in Web3 world, AI, machine learning, that sort of community and learning what's going on there. So I have some hope that you know, because we can't count on people and people designed systems to help our communities, that maybe it'll be the machine learning that makes it all undeniable. That's what I'm sort of hoping. Now, again, I don't know how that happens, but I, I'm putting some hope in, in technology. Have you read Author's Web by Hillary Johnson? Mm, no, I think I've read like chunks of it, but not all of it. No. 
a long, convoluted book. It's very difficult to wade through. But the it was written in 1996 or published in 1996, and it covers the early years. And it explains in great detail how the early organizations, the EBV and chronic teaching organizations, even before the ME term became associated, would get too close to government officials and be co-opted. By uh, 1992, Dr. Paul Cheney, the doctor that really launched the chronic fatigue syndrome, he had um, commented on this, how it was incredible that the powers that be, the federal authorities, groom and cultivate apologists, advocates who are amenable to being co-opted. And these people are promoted into positions of power to where they become representatives of the paradigm when all they're basically doing is providing the alibi for further inaction, further inaction. I think the term is useful idiots. <laughs> yeah. But these people, I don't think they're really idiots. You talk with them, they are very rational in conversation, normal conversation where you're not being recorded. They they sound like they are no different than you or I. And maybe it's that they this belief they've got that they can work from the inside. They can sneak their way in and affect change that way. But unfortunately, all that we've seen so far is they wind up being mouthpieces for the deniers. Yes, uh, I had to come to that realization that, you know, am I part of the solution or am I part of the problem by playing the role of patient partner with government? And like I said before, what I came to my own personal conclusion was, you know, I was just sustaining that system and allowing them to point to me and others and say, hey, yeah, we're, we're engaging with the patient community. We really care about these folks. But as we discovered early in the HIV AIDS pandemic, um, often there's just tokenism going on. And then, you know, if you get money in there, show me the incentives and I'll show you the outcomes becomes more and more true. So if somebody's ego or bank account or paycheck is dependent upon one thing being a narrative being promoted, that, that's compromising. Yeah. Peter Staley uh, talked about you know, how to survive a plague and um, the AIDS community had HIV to unite about. That was solid as a rock. I mean, um, the MECFS people, they don't have that. They've got no abnormality that they can all agree on and say, this is what we've got to. So they kind of reverted down to fatigue, post-exertion malaise, which the deniers can ward off by saying, well, that, that could be from overtraining system. It could be deconditioning. It could be just something in your head where you've developed a fear of exercise. And that's not really powerful enough to break their stranglehold on the paradigm. So it sounds like you're saying that if we had a biomarker that would make our case a lot easier. And we've seen that in other diseases. As soon as a biomarker comes along, a lot of that gaslighting falls away. Yeah. M my worry is that uh, there may not be one biomarker that covers everybody, say with ME, because it's so uh, homogeneous. So that, that's one of my concerns. 
hopefully it, it will be a single biomarker, but that's a concern. Well, that's the, uh, that's the trick is when the chronic fatigue syndrome was coined, it was for a very specific reason in which this entity, this set of immune parameters plus this new virus was discrete enough that it constituted, constituted a new syndrome, a new unknown thing they could put in the literature. And to, to defeat it, all the CDC had to do is say, well, we don't know anything about it, but it seems to be characterized by fatigue. And they went out and they found other fatigue people, did what they called a so-called CFS study. On It was a telephone, telephone survey. They simply called up people and said, do you feel tired or not? And they came back and go, well, not everybody who feels tired has these immune parameters that you're talking about. So therefore, maybe if you've got this uh, HBLV virus and all the other things that Dr. Cheney and Dr. Peterson found, perhaps you don't have CFS at all. And that's what they do. You can see this with every illness name they come up with. If something compelling comes up for a small data set, they can just extend the definition until the compelling evidence becomes lost and meaningless. Yeah, yeah. There was a famous, uh, or maybe not famous, but a well-known uh, researcher, I think he may have been editor of one of the journals, who said that over half of the objective research could not be replicated and was not trustworthy. And so that's, you know, numbers. Uh, not even talking about subjective psychological research, which has even less replicability. So even if we take that half of the sort of objective research is useless, wrong, uh, that's disturbing in and of itself. Very much so. It really speaks to how badly science has lost its way. But it's very embryonic. We like to think we know a lot about the human body and yeah, we do, but in the when we back up and zoom out, we're still very, very, very early in understanding the human body. They're still discovering body parts. So, you know, we have to take everything under that sort of the viewpoint that it's we're still very early in understanding. Yeah, I receive a lot of criticism for sticking to stachybotrys. In fact, the number one thing that people complain about is, well, that's just one thing. Well, it's one thing that was found in the original chronic fatigue syndrome cluster. So that's like a rock because you can't tear it down. No matter how much you broaden the definition and try to say it could be caused by anything and everything. If you just look at this one particular thing, it was a discovery that was made in spite of all efforts to stop it by saying, never look at one thing because there's chronic fatigue syndrome is the result of, it's multifactorial. It's the result of anything and everything. And from that point of view, this really interesting and amazing artifact of toxic mold would never have been discovered. And even though it was discovered in spite of all efforts to prevent it, they're trying to revert it into being meaningless, like saying that doesn't apply to everybody with chronic fatigue syndrome. Well, all they did was put the chronic fatigue syndrome name on so many things that this original artifact of interest got lost. Right, the signal's lost. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned that. So I, I dug in to find my, my mold tests. Yeah. Uh, and uh, the Strachybaris, I'm mutilating that. I don't see it here on my test. I would have expected it. 
No stacky botrys? Oh, here it is under the trichothecene family. Okay. Stocky is that a urine bite- test or a test for your house? A urine test. I sent it to real-time laboratories just over a year ago. I got the results. And so they tested in five different uh, mycotoxins, of which four of them I'm, I'm positive for. Wow. So here we have a suggestion of exposure. Yeah, and I can also tell you that in 2017, I also had the testing done that showed the same thing. And so I moved out of this house and into a condo for three months to see if that helped. I didn't have any change. And when I go to Mexico for a week or two, it doesn't change my health at all. I've taken, you know, the the medication, the cold chlorella, the activated charcoal, et cetera, and I've had no effect. So I don't know if it's because I've also got Coxsackie and perhaps Lyme that I need to treat all of these things. Well, what if the whole idea that this is a dose-related problem is a flawed premise? See, I was uh, trained in biological warfare by the U.S. Army, and the idea was that if you were exposed to an immune suppressant, it would wipe out immunity to the point where secondary pathogens could creep into areas of immune privilege, get a foothold, and you would be unable to dislodge them. The immune suppressant has left the picture, but the secondary infections, you can't get rid of them anymore. And it turns out that the stachybotrys, the trichothecine uh, toxins, are powerful enough to constitute exactly that type of immunosuppressive exposure. You could have a transient exposure to a sick building, drop your immunity down, and all of a sudden you light up with Epstein virus, HHV6, Parvo, CMV, any number of bacterial infections or fungal infections, and now they're out of control and you can no longer get rid of them, but you got out of the building. So the doctors say, well, I guess that wasn't the problem. So from an epidemiological point of view, if you look at the movements, of the original chronic fatigue syndrome cluster in and out of these buildings, we see a pattern where they got sick in these buildings. And even though they got out of the buildings, the ones that were there, the ones that went through the bad zones, these were the ones that got the chronic form of the Tahoe flu that went through and didn't get better. So I sort of invite researchers to re-examine their premise that um, they're treating mold like an allergy. You get away from it and you automatically get better. Maybe that's not true. Maybe this thing put such a whack on our immune function that it opened up the door to things that otherwise would never be able to get so badly out of control. All right. So it's sort of like a form of AIDS. There's an immune deficiency caused by the mold, allowing these other previously controlled viruses to come forth and cause dysfunction. That's exactly what I called it, a chemically induced AIDS. So what's really fascinating is to look at the clusters, what we know about existing outbreaks from that point of view, and go, did they have this kind of immune suppressive exposure? And then from that point on, their illness had evolved into something else, something a little different. And those aren't my words. Dr. Cheney said that. It started out as almost a common flu. And then we saw it evolving into something else. 
and Incline Village being a very small place, I go, wait a minute, why is the illness evolving into something else in these sick buildings? Mm-hmm. So you are healthy now, if memory serves? Well, that uh, all depends. I still have the immune defect. I still have the low natural killer cell function and the incredible hypersensitivity to this particular toxin, the trichothecine toxins. But my experiment was to see if I paid such close attention to the specific exposure, the symptoms consistent with stachybotrys and trichothecines, could I make headway on this? Instead of thinking, well, I moved to a different building, so that is ruled out. What if now in my life, I have to attend to all the sick buildings and treat this substance like plutonium? And I described what I wanted to do to chronic fatigue syndrome researchers like Dr. Peterson before I did it. And he said, well, I don't think it's going to work because you've already got the infection, so it's too late. And I go, I have absolutely nothing to left by trying, so I intend to proceed. And I've managed to keep myself functional and symptom-free for decades using this basic premise. And so the strategy is dot, dot, dot? I actually got a sample of stachybotrys and took it out to the desert and trained myself to be my own mold dog. I found there were enough distinctive patterns of how my body would react to this that it fell into a recognizable pattern. And I um, regard that set of symptoms as being something that I have to get away from quickly and decontaminate. Very important. Make sure it doesn't get in my hair or my clothing and be carried home to me, get into my bed and get into my house. And as long as I do that, it's, it's absolutely astonishing. And of course, the question is, okay, that's well and fine for you. Is it reproducible? Can other people do this? And that's what we've been trying at Exposing Mold is to find out, can other people learn this technique and do they get a similar result? And I can't say that it's science at its finest, but it's anecdotal and compelling enough to the point that researchers really ought to be taking a look at it. And so your strategy is to avoid places or to pay and to pay particular attention to how your body's reacting and then get out of whatever context that is if you're reacting. At the height of illness, I really had to avoid hard. I mean, there were certain streets that I couldn't drive down. There were buildings that if I even got in front of the building, it would knock me out for days. But over time, I moved myself up the power curve and built up tolerance, even to the point that the very places that used to scare me to death years ago, I go in and out of them freely now. So just to clarify, is that you've built up tolerance or your immune system has come back strong enough now that for short periods you can tolerate them? Not having a laboratory, I don't know. I wish I did. I mean, I would love to have the answer to that. Is it because I detoxed or did my immune system build up a reserve or did the mast cells finally decide to calm down because I'm not being exposed to the inciting irritant all the time? I really wish I knew because then I could tell others. Right. Yeah. So, Keely, how did you 
get involved with Eric and this project? That's a good question. I So I'm an acupuncturist and an herbalist, and um, I was living in a different area, and I was mold sick, and I didn't know. So I was a healthcare provider, and I was sick, but I didn't know it was from the mold in my house or my rental apartment. So figuring that out pretty quick like we had to move and we were in mold and here it is again in our second rental after leaving I actually made a video you know I started search articles about mold because I'm like what the heck just happened to my life everyone in my family just almost killed each other and self-imploded with all these different illnesses and come to find out it's all this one root cause and I had no idea and I'm a healthcare provider how did I not know this? So it was like this massive unraveling. And I started deep diving into research and I started finding things that looked like blatant lies in peer reviewed research, like bullying mold illness hysteria. And I'm like, oh no, the wrong one mad because my kids were not mass hysteria. We weren't hysterical, we were sick. Mm-hmm. So I knew something weird was happening with like, why are they misrepresenting what this is? So I did a little video. Look at how crazy this is. There's these doctors that are lying about what this is. And Eric caught wind of that video and he was like, hey, nice work, which anyone ever. <laughs> and he invited me into his group. And... um pretty early, like pretty early on i realized like he knew something that i didn't know and it was really important and he was like pushing me to see if i knew if i cared if i would look at it and it kind of jolted me in my tracks as a provider because i was like why am i always being challenged by this person like what does he know that i don't and am i doing something wrong so i took a look at it turns out I was doing what you were doing. I was giving advice about mold that I thought was helpful that wasn't actually accurate based on my limited understanding at the time. I was I was giving people herbal medicine and acupuncture when I needed to help them understand if they probably needed to leave their house or not. You know, and so I had to have that look within of what am I bringing to the table that's actually working against people's health. You know, and I think Eric appreciated that in me and, you know, basically been best friends ever since the exposing mold we just do on the side (laughs) that's just kind of a lighthearted joke because you know Eric kind of just became family to me after that and I've I've told him it's crazy to me that I've never met you in person and you've given me the most important things that I have in my life because it was Eric sharing his strategy of what mold avoidance means in terms of trusting your immune system reactions that have allowed me to regain control over my life and health and not only that I'm able to teach my children these things which gives them power over their life and health that they can pass on to their kids and I really can't think of a more empowering gift to give my kids than the truth about their health because there's just this master manipulation in medicine that is creating only customers and not cures and I don't want my kids victim to that for their whole entire life so if this is the legacy that I can leave for them to be in control over their health I cannot even imagine a better gift to give to my kids and I only have that because I stopped 
ask myself if I was wrong and then listen to the answer when I met Eric. Wow. Well, yes. Sorry. So yeah, health is wealth is sounds like what you're saying. Oh, totally. Yeah. Because, you know, there's that thing where they say, can I give you $10 million? And everyone's like, yeah. Okay. But the condition is you don't wake up tomorrow. Well, at that point, nobody wants the money. want to wake up tomorrow. Yeah. So how's your health now? Well, I did just have another exposure. Um, So one thing that happens is that my heart goes crazy with a feeling of anxiety when I'm near exposure. And um, I had been taking small weekly doses of ivermectin because it helps me tolerate that sensation and relieves the pain. But what I accidentally did with doing that was dull what I call my mold radar. And so I got really deep into another exposure. Just, I mean, I just fled this house on April 12th of this year. And I, I could not return and has been removed the offending window. Um, and now I've unmapped to the other windows that all need to be replaced. So what I get with minimal exposure is if you can see that my forehead swells. So I'm expecting once these windows are finished being replaced, some of the swelling will go down. How this manifests for me is like a heightened emotional response. Like I'm not as poised. And sometimes that, that is like snapping and kind of raging on my kids in a way that I don't appreciate. Nobody does. Um, but my health from now since April is completely different. I had kind of slowly regressed into barely functioning and the way that it plays tricks in your mind you can get so far in without even really noticing you know and that's what that's went to me and um wanted to share just about the the name exposing mold is when we fled our first rental and ended up in the second rental that also had hidden mold, I didn't know. I kept hearing like my intuition tell me exposing mold, exposing mold, exposing mold. And I was like, what the heck is this? I just registered the domain name because it was kind of driving me crazy. And then like a month later, I found hidden mold. And I thought that was like the exposing mold. Like, okay, I exposed it now. But when I met Eric... I realized that there's this whole cover-up with chronic fatigue syndrome with mold, you know? So like we need help exposing mold with the health advocates because it's like everyone wants to be, you know, the leader of their own mountain. And that's great. Like whatever, but not if it prevents us from working together because how can we forces and build one medical system that's actually like helpful if everyone wants to be the king of their own supplement sales and perfect diet that they're selling and like all this stuff that actually doesn't work at the end of the day for a very serious environmental illness when my window exploded I could not tolerate my yard now if if someone hasn't experienced that, that sounds unbelievable but can you imagine your legs going out in your yard because of a window in your house Like, that's the level, you know, and if you haven't been sick to that level and you're selling freaking charcoal binders to someone, you probably don't realize a big mistake, but it's time that these providers wake up and realize this is bigger than like just their little health clinic. You know, this is the immune system failure of the world. 
and science fraud abound. Now they're calling long COVID MECFS. Like apparently now in fashion science, you can just retroactively fit a virus from 2019 to make it be the cause of a syndrome from the 1980s. Like what is happening? So nice to meet you. <laughs> so I have to go soon because I have a, a meeting soon. Well, thank you so much for joining us. If people want to do counseling with you for medical gaslighting, how can they connect with you? Uh, they can find me on Twitter, uh, Remedies Podcast, I think is my handle there, or my website, remediescounseling.com. Those are the two best ways. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Great talking to you. You too. We want to thank you for listening. Just sending a friendly reminder that what we say is not intended as medical advice, but information to expand your thinking surrounding common situations and issues within the mold community. If you like what we do, please support us by making a donation in the link in our show notes. We also provide one-on-one consultations, products to help with symptom management that you can find in our shop, and a private membership group filled with a supportive community of peers working together to heal from toxic mold. As a friendly reminder, Exposing Mold is a 501c3 nonprofit, and every donation is tax deductible. Thank you so much for your support, and we look forward to providing you with the most honest information out there on mold and mold issues. Please visit ExposingMold.org for more information. Mm -hmm.